We're starting a new series in Ephesians today. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Community Covenant Church. And this study in Ephesians, we've titled Grace to Know and Grace to Go. To know and to go. To understand and to see clearly, but then to be motivated in a direction. Motivated in a response, in a passion, and in a purpose. You may hear in this upcoming series, uh, in the sermons, you may hear the words indicative and imperative. The book of Ephesians is six chapters, and the first three chapters of those are, are what we would call indicatives, and the last three chapters, chapters four through six, are what we would call imperatives. The first three chapters are indicatives. They reveal something to us about the character of God, about the, the nature of God, about the truth of God. And then the last three chapters are imperative. They command a response or they evoke a response from us. So as we go through this study, it's going to be broken up into those two sections, grace to know and grace to go, indicatives and imperatives. I've heard the analogy used that an indicative would be like saying something like, it's raining outside. And then the imperative is, so when I leave the house, I'm going to grab an umbrella. So the imperative, the indicative spurs us onto the imperative, the action that flows from that. And it's also going to be continuation of the study that we've been in, um, going back to the fall where we studied the Beatitudes and then our recent sermon series. It was a lengthy sermon series, but it was a great sermon series on the sermon, Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. What we learned in our time there was that God is looking for heart transformation. Jesus' teachings showed us that it's not a list of do's and don'ts. Our faith is not based on a list of do's and don'ts, but it is heart transformation. And at the end of it all, with, at this, with the Sermon on the Mount, with every chunk that we pulled out and we took a good long look at, we realized that what Jesus was teaching was heart transformation, the, the motive, the reason behind why we do the things we do. It's not just a checklist, but it's an overflow from our heart. And Ephesians is going to continue in that idea of heart transformation. So that's what we're going to look at as we continue on in the book of Ephesians. Really, Ephesians is a letter. The book of Ephesians is actually a letter, presumably written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus around 60 AD. At that time, Paul was imprisoned in Rome while he was writing this letter. Ephesus was the ancient capital of a region called Asia Minor. Asia Minor is not the Asia that we think about today, but Asia Minor uh, in ancient times would have been what we know now as modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus sat right on the western shore of Asia Minor. We read in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, in chapter 18, that, that Paul quickly visits Ephesus in his second missionary journey, and that he starts to evangelize to the Jews there. A disciple named Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, Paul's traveling companions, had waited there or stayed there as Paul moved on. And then later on in chapter 19 of Acts, we read that 
Paul spends a little over two years there evangelizing to the church at Ephesus and baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. Ephesus was a place of diverse commerce and culture. As you can tell from its location, it is a main, it's part of a main shipping route. This is a hub of commerce and culture. But it's also a place of spiritual diversity. There was a temple there to the Greek goddess Artemis. And we read later on in the story in Acts 19 that, that Paul, from what we read, we see that Paul must have come up against this spirituality frequently. But as a result of Paul's time there, Ephesus turns into a hub for Christianity. Paul and the church then bring the gospel to the Jews in Ephesus, to the Gentiles in Ephesus, the, the non-practicing Jews in Ephesus, and the church begins to grow. Although it's not mentioned in Scripture, Ephesus, tradition says that Ephesus is where the disciple John and Jesus' mother Mary actually spent their last days. Remember when Jesus was dying on the cross, he had the disciple John, or what the Bible refers to as the disciple that Jesus loved, and Mary, his mother, and Mary Magdalene are all there at the cross. And as Jesus is dying, he looks down to John and he says, take care of my mother. Well, tradition has it that Ephesus is where John and Mary spent their last days. As we move into today's scripture, I think it's important to mention one more distinction about the church in Ephesus. As Paul's ministry is coming to a close, after he had spent that time in Ephesus, he travels up to Macedonia. And as he's wrapping up his third missionary journey while he's in Macedonia, the Bible says that Paul was resolved in the spirit to travel to Jerusalem and then eventually up to Rome. So while he's in Macedonia, Paul is resolved in the spirit to travel to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And at that time, Paul knows that by going to Jerusalem, it's going to end in his arrest and his imprisonment, the very imprisonment that he's sending this letter from. And as he's passing Ephesus in Acts 20, it says that he was hurried to get to Jerusalem, so he sailed past Ephesus. He didn't port there. He didn't stop there because he didn't want to get tied up. But in Acts 20, 17, we read that he traveled another 50 miles south down to a town called Miletus, where he ported there. From there, the story says that he called on the elders of the church in Ephesus to come down and meet him. He called on the elders to come down and meet him in Miletus. And when he gathers with them, what he does is he affirms what he and the church together how they had built the church through the power of the Spirit and by the word of the gospel. And he charges the elders of the church to continue in that legacy. It's a beautiful portion of scripture because it says that they gather together and they start weeping. They start praying because they know and Paul knows that this is the last time that they're going to see each other. This is Paul's goodbye. It shows the emotional, the great emotional and spiritual tie that Paul had 
to the leaders in the church at Ephesus. Why do I bring this up? I think that sometimes it's easy to feel disconnected from the context of what we read in the Bible. Sometimes we forget that it's not just spiritual direction and teaching, but it's actually history. These were real people. They faced hardship just like we do. They were relational. They received the same spirit that we have. And as we look at Paul's introduction to this letter in our time together now, this letter to the Ephesian church, I believe that God intends for us to hear it just as Paul intended the early church to hear it. Paul was writing this letter to a church, to a group of people that he was so close to. He's sharing God's heart with them. And now he's sharing God's heart with us. The first century church needed to hear this, and we need to hear this. And I hope that as we study through the book of Ephesians, that we remember that, that these were real people, real relationships, a real church with real problems and real struggles, and they needed to hear a real word from God. And as we study, I hope we see that first century church or community covenant church, we're more alike than we are unalike. So let's pray now as we, we dig into God's word. Heavenly Father, we want a word from you. Your word is living and active in our hearts. Your spirit is working in our hearts and revealing truths and convictions and understanding and knowledge. God, you are God full of grace. You've bestowed us with such an opportunity and such a gift. God, as we read this letter to the Ephesians, remind us that we are more alike than we are unalike. God, do not let this be some lofty, spiritual-sounding teaching that doesn't penetrate our hearts, but we're inviting you to do that. Move this from head knowledge down to heart knowledge, down to heart passion and feeling and response. So I pray for this series as we begin our study through this book. I pray that you reveal yourself in fresh and new ways, ways that we have never seen before, but ways that speak to us specifically as a church, Community Covenant Church in 2020. God, so that we can be more and more like your kingdom here on earth. Amen. All right, so Ephesians, grace to know and grace to go. Today we're looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and I've titled this teaching, Revelation and Response. These 12 verses, really starting at verse 3, from verse 3 to 14, these 12 verses in the original Greek are actually one glorious, as Pastor Graves referred to it as, one glorious run-on sentence of 202 words, a 202-word run-on sentence from verses 3 through 14. 
What we see in this 202-word sentence is Paul experiencing God. Paul is getting caught up in the majesty, in the mystery, and in the sovereignty of God. He's caught up in worship. He's caught up in who God is and all that God is doing. 202 words. So what I'd like to do in our time together is try and fully wrap our heads around what Paul is talking about so that our hearts can be moved by it. It starts with understanding. It starts with God revealing. And then it moves down into our hearts. It penetrates our hearts. And it prompts and evokes a response. God, would you let our worship be an overflow of our hearts? So I want to try and wrap our heads around what Paul is saying here. These verses are rich, rich, rich in theology, and they contain some thoughts and wording that's known as salvation language. Salvation language. Phrases and words like spiritual blessing and heavenly places, being chosen by God, predestined by God. Words like redemption, inheritance, and finally grace. So I'm going to take a look at these words and phrases. My hope is that I'm able to maybe smooth some rough edges or carve them out or, or give, give some sort of a little bit of insight into what these words or phrases mean so we can better understand the rapture that Paul is caught up in. Starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does that mean? It's not necessarily speaking about spiritual gifts. Within the context of what Paul is sharing, he's recognizing that the world that we live in is not the only reality. There's something greater. There's something bigger that we're a part of. Paul is acknowledging that we are a part of God's kingdom here on earth. And he blesses us in Christ with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He gives us a taste of those heavenly places. He gives us a taste of that larger reality through Christ. Note in Christ, this term is going to pop up a lot throughout this doxology, throughout this 202-word run-on sentence, but it's also going to pop up a lot throughout the book of Ephesians. All that we experience is made possible by our union with Christ because of his work on the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we are in Christ, everything that is true about him becomes true about us. Ephesians emphasizes the importance of that relationship. So in Christ, God has given us spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's given us a taste of of that otherworldly realm, that otherworldly place. Right after that, in verses 4 and 5, we read, even as he chose us, there it is again, in him, before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ in him, according to the purpose of his will. Now, I know the thought of God choosing who will know him or who will experience life with him can be somewhat unsettling. The topic of predestination can be a real hot-button debate, even among studied scholars. So I'm not going to try and end that debate or even enter that debate right now. When it comes down to whether God chooses or we choose, whether we are predestined or what's known as predestination's cousin, the idea of being elect and chosen, there will always be tension and conversations around this topic because we just can't understand it. We just don't know. And God knows and sees so much more than we can. I don't believe that Paul is even addressing the doctrine of predestination. Within the context of Ephesians, Paul is writing about God's involvement and interaction in the human race, God's involvement and interaction in humankind. Even as, he has chose, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, God's interest and involvement in who we are as the human race goes back to before the foundations of the world. If you just stop and think about that for a moment, before God began to put the world and space into place, He chose us. He chose us. That's what's turning Paul's heart towards worship. Not a theological debate, but the truth that the almighty God, before the creation of the universe, was interested in us. Moving on to verse 7, we see the word redemption. Again, in him, we have redemption through his blood, through the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Theologian Kyle Snodgrass writes in his commentary on Ephesians that the term term redemption has its roots in the Old Testament idea of the covenant and in the language of the ancient marketplace. In both instances, It involved the idea of purchasing or buying back some item or person that would otherwise be lost, taken prisoner, or destroyed. The idea of redemption should be familiar to us. We saw redemption in the story of Ruth back in the fall. If you weren't able to catch our sermon series on Ruth, we did a four-week sermon series. You can click the past messages tab up in the right-hand side after the gathering and go check out that sermon series. A beautiful story of redemption. We see in that story that Boaz redeemed the field and was the kinsman, what we call, the, what Pastor Greg called the kinsman redeemer to Ruth, her savior. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that we were bought at a price, speaking about Christ's death as our redeemer. So when we talk about redemption, we remember that our salvation comes at a cost. That was, that's what Paul was reminding the church in Corinth. 
he was addressing their immorality and he was reminding them, saying, remember, you were bought at a price. Salvation had a cost. Sacrifice. But we were bought back, adopted into the family of God, co-heirs with Christ in the family of God. Redemption. Next, in verse 11, see the word inheritance. In him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have been predestined into an inheritance. When we think of inheritance, we normally think of physical materials. But we learned in Matthew 6, 19 in our Sermon on the Mount that the physical will pass. Moth and dust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. The inheritance that we have is eternal. God's economy is eternal. And our eternal inheritance far outweighs anything that we could ever receive or experience here on earth. We receive a taste of heaven now, but can you imagine the day where we stand before our God who chose us before the foundation of the world in all of his glory and majesty, the joy that is going to fill our hearts in that moment in the presence of God is going to be far greater than any joy temporary joy that we can experience in our lifetime. And that inheritance is solid. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.4 that it's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is what we look ahead to, our inheritance. Later on, Paul reminds us that the Holy Spirit is our deposit, is our guarantee of that inheritance. So when Paul talks about inheritance, he's looking ahead to that day that we will stand before God in all of his glory, in the fullness of joy. That's an exciting thing to think about. Lastly, and threaded throughout this glorious run-on sentence, we see in verse 8, grace. Grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Grace freely given to those who ask through the power of his Holy Spirit. It reminds me of a, a story that I once heard of a a father who's teaching his children what grace was. And he had them stand at the bottom of the stairway in their house. And he stood at the top. And he said to his kids, he said, as soon as each of you get to the top of the steps, we're going out for ice cream. So as soon as each one of you are up here, we're going out for ice cream. Kids are, of course, all excited and says, but you cannot touch one stair on your way up. So immediately the kids start scratching their heads and they start 
One starts throwing their body up the steps, and of course, he can't make it. Another starts to grab the banister and starts shimmying up the trim board. Obviously, he's not going to make it. Until his daughter says, his daughter looks up at him, and his daughter says, Dad, will you carry me upstairs? And he looks down, and he smiles. He says, absolutely. He goes downstairs, grabs his daughter, and then brings her up to the top of the steps. Eventually, each one of his kids asked for him to carry him up to the top of the steps. Grace freely given to those who ask. It's nothing that we have done. It's all through God's love. It's all through God's power. So having looked at these verses and these words, what I would like to do is reread Paul's introduction to his letter. We just had a lot of head knowledge. I know that. What I'd like to try to do is now move that head knowledge down into our hearts. And as we reread Paul's introduction, we can consider those words and phrases, hopefully having a better understanding of what Paul is experiencing and what Paul is talking about. So I'm going to ask everyone, wherever you're at, to close your eyes while I reread Paul's introduction. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. This is 202 words of rich in theology and overflowing with passion. And as one commentary puts it, we see God 
in all 202 words, we see God as the primary actor through it all. We see God's initiative. This isn't about us. It's about God moving through our lives and our history for his will and for his glory. It's a response to who God is and all that he's doing. God is interested in us. God is pursuing us. God is meeting us. And God is giving life to us. I want to encourage you to keep your eyes closed for one more moment. I feel as though God is stirring in hearts right now. He's making aware things that he may need to root out of hearts, that he may need to remove. Maybe this Holy Spirit is bringing to mind some things in your life that you need to repent of, that you need to turn from. I believe that the Spirit's doing a work in your heart right now. I believe that you are caught up in the same rapture that Paul was. And in these moments, would you respond to that? Would you repent before God? Would you turn your heart and tune your heart to God? And if this is your first time hearing about the grace of God, the pursuit of God, then I want you to know that he's after you. He wants your heart. He knows your brokenness, and despite that, he's created a way for you to experience fullness of life in him. If you feel that God is calling you into a relationship with him now, would you let us know? There may be a button showing up on your screen that you can press where you can be connected with one of our hosts or one of our prayer team, but we would love to come alongside you as you make this life-changing decision. But would you respond in these moments now, either in repentance and worship in response to God's calling on your heart Throughout this entire run-on sentence, we see a God that pursues us, a God who wants to know us. He's a God that wants to know you. And we want to be here for you as a church as you begin that relationship. My encouragement is that as we continue to study through the book of Ephesians, that God continues to reveal himself to us individually in our identity in him, in Christ, and as a church in our unity in him and in Christ, that we are continued to be made alive in Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for these moments that we're able to spend in study. We thank you for your word that you've revealed to us. We thank you for your spirit that moves in us. God, we consider these things that the God of the universe before the foundation of the world pursued us, 
was interested in us. So as we continue to seek your will for each of us as individuals and as a church, God, continue to teach us and to build us up. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who makes all of these things possible. And it's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen.